From inflation to the rising cost of health care, in today's economic environment, many patients may delay or choose not to move forward with recommended care because of the cost. By accepting the Care Credit credit card, you can help more patients get the care they want and need without delay by offering a convenient way to pay for coinsurance, deductibles, and care not covered by insurance. Plus, when patients use Care Credit, you receive payment in two business days, helping to increase cash flow and reduce self-pay receivables, enhance the patient experience, and help increase satisfaction and loyalty with Care Credit. For more information or to get started, visit carecredit.com/mgma-podcast. Well, hi, everyone. I'm Daniel Williams, senior editor at MGMA and host of the MGMA Podcast Network. Uh, Today, we are back with another Consultants Corner podcast, and joining us is Dr. Chris Sinkowski. Um, Chris, you have a long resume as we were talking about offline. We're going to get into that uh, here shortly, but first of all, thanks, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah. Now, you are one of MGMA's consultants. That's only part of your resume. And again, we are going to get into more detail on your varied uh, healthcare career. Um, But I'll just go over a couple of things here. You have over 15 years of experience in physician compensation, valuation, and practice management. That's just to name a few of the things that you've worked on. You're also a graduate of the University of Michigan and of Harvard Medical School. Let's go back to the beginning. What led Dr. Sinkowski into healthcare in the first place? What first uh, uh, sparked that interest for you? So I grew up in Detroit, so, um, and my mother was a school teacher. My father was a business, business no, no medical background. But okay. in that time, you know, in Michigan, that was the, the height of the middle-class experiment. You know, everyone, had a good job and a good education and public schools were good and everyone was pretty much service oriented, I think. So that, that call to service was a part of my drive. You know, I always expected to, you know, develop expertise and provide that service to somebody who might need it. So I think that called, you know, and obviously liking science and liking to be with people drew me to medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, now you currently uh, serve as professor and chair of the Department of Surgery at Mercer University School of Medicine at the Savannah campus. Um, talk about that role. What is your primary focus at Mercer? What are you, um, what are those goals that you're driving toward for uh, the medical school there? Well, the medical school here I developed out of a need for more physicians in rural areas. Georgia is a pretty large geographic state with with not a lot of big urban centers other than Atlanta and Savannah is actually the second busiest city. It's not that big really. So the mission is to create more primary care involvement. Um, and that includes general surgery. So when we think about the shortage of sort of general doctors for our population, it's primary care physicians, pediatricians, OBGYNs, and general surgeons at a base level for, you know, rural populations. And so it's a big part of our mission is to create a core um, training program for physicians, you know, in Georgia, the rural or in more rural areas than in urban areas. And we're seeing that in a lot of issues we can get to later when we talk about the expansion of the role of an APP, 
versus a physician? Is that because they're not, there's not enough physicians around or is it because mm-hmm. the supportive roles are necessary? And I think those are getting blurred because of the shortage of physicians right now. So Mercer specifically addresses that, that rural, rural need. Had you identified that uh, need for uh, rural physicians um, as you developed and into this job, or is this something that's come about over time? I mean, I guess I should look at it this way. As you mentioned, the state of Georgia has, obviously it has Atlanta, a huge international city, but um, as you were saying, a lot of parts of it are rural. So does it just feed into that? I think we're seeing now with like there's in general, there's a lot of shortages in positions and Mm -hmm. we can speak to the the 1997 balanced budget amendment that locked out residency spots in terms of funding, which is now coming back as a recent New York Times or I think Washington Post article about um, not only compensation, but shortages. So we're a lot of hospitals are having a hard time recruiting physicians whether that be in primary care or in specialties. And we're, we're realizing that you got a better shot at putting physicians, particularly in rural areas, if they're from a rural area or from that rural area. So a lot of medical schools are now training people with a preference towards those from rural areas, particularly from that state or that area, because those are the ones that are gonna go back and take care of their communities. And hmm. we, we need that desperately in many parts of the country. Mm-hmm. One last question about the med school. Someone were to uh, get accepted in the school, took your course, what could they expect to learn? What do you want to get across to those students? <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I teach medical students and residents. We have a residency program in surgery okay. too. And like one of my favorite lines is from, there's a, a famous Harvard physician that's named Francis Peabody. And he always says the secret to caring for patients is to care for the patient. And so, you know, teaching people to be compassionate and, you know, um, give a darn in a, in a way, it's just the most important thing is to really, you know, care about it. That's critical. And it's, it gets lost. You'd be surprised. It can get lost in all the other things we're obligated to do to get to that, that focus. Well, that's what I hear so much when I'm talking to physicians is that those administrative burdens get into the way in get in the way of caring for patients. Yeah. And how, how do you help? Yeah. Right. How do you advise those uh, students of yours to navigate that? Yeah. Well, they have to. They you know they rotate on different specialties, and they clearly come to understand what position or specialty speaks to them. You know, typically in surgery, the, the hours are super long. And yet the students that go into it feel like the day went by very quickly and they recognize very quickly that they're meant to be. So, you know, hopefully that's number one passion and you got to work on your time management skills to try and wade through the other stuff. It's not going away. Right. You and I talked about that offline, that time management side of it. I've already talked about part of your career, the different things that you've done. I just want to reiterate this. You have had a varied career in MD a consultant, a professor. We'll get into some other things in a little bit. So what has been the driving force for you to work in these different aspects of healthcare? Because you kind of just gone through med school, been a surgeon, and that's what your calling was, but you've you've branched into other areas as well. Well, I think that, and um, you know, if you develop your expertise, you should share it. So whether you become extremely focused on your clinical pathway and 
really becomes someone that dedicates to a community, whether, you know, be small or large or, or a specialty. And, and if you have a, an interest in creating change or advocating change, then you'll, you'll naturally fall into the next pattern, which would be either leadership or, you know, an ability to bring your expertise to another area. And um, I think in medicine, there's definitely a need for crossover. You, you can't stay in your silo in medicine or you won't, there's just so much cross-pollination of information. And if you don't um, jump into another area at some point, especially if you're interested in it, then um, you, you won't push the chaos forward. And I think that sometimes people are afraid to do that when they probably have really good skill sets to offer and they don't realize it and, and they're, and they're maybe they're timid or they're afraid to sort of jump into a completely different arena when like, I've never got an MBA and I've always thought, well, I should go get that. I should go get that. I should go get that. And then by the end, I'm like, well, I would just be, I only know that stuff. And people tell me, well, you don't, you don't need to do that now. Realize that it's okay not to have an MBA because you've lived it and you could probably teach some of those courses but don't feel bad. Just go to go take do what you want to do anyway, because you have the skill set. Mm -hmm. so I would think some physicians feel like they're nervous outside of the medical realm, um, whether it's in healthcare policy or um, advocacy, or you know, even now the new thing with social determinants of health and how we can impact the actual experience of the patient. I think we're the experts at that. We shouldn't hide from that. Mm -hmm. I was listening to a podcast recently with the author Malcolm Gladwell, and he was talking about how the career arc for people is so different than it used to be and how important it is uh, for us as humans to make shifts and tweaks and to evolve throughout our career. You're a perfect example of that, continuing to be curious, continuing to forge new ground, what advice can you give uh, to our listeners about that as well? Well, I think you got to not be afraid to get stuck. I mean, I think that medicine may be a little bit different than with Malcolm Gladwell because it takes about 10 or 15 years to grow your experience. True. You know? And um, and you will reach different peaks in your medical career and where you're, you know, you're confident and then you peak in your expertise and then you need to be more advisory as you get older and sort of like, like my biggest um, role now is advising others or, telling a junior faculty member, not alone a resident or a student, but a faculty member that they can do that case and they don't need me anymore to help them. Or I'll be there if you need me, or I think you're making the right decision, or maybe you should consider this. And so, you know, having that ability to be the advisor is pretty interesting, actually. That's one of my more interesting roles right now. Um, and then I'll just tell you, I was thinking about this as we got ready for this podcast about all the patients I've taken care of. And often if I have a, an, an, like an introspective patient, I, I do a lot of cancer surgery, so I'll see patients at the end of life, you know, and I'll always ask them, like, what do you look back on? What do you think is valuable? What should we teach our young people? And they, you know, beside, they'll always say family, obviously, right? That's number one. And, but they'll often just say the work, you know, you know, don't, don't worry about the money or the accolades or the, it's the work itself. Are you doing good work? And if you keep changing your goals and being in, in you know, interested in new things, I think that's probably going to be valuable to you in the end. As much as you worry about staying late and not having any time off and I should retire early and go on vacation, probably the real stuff is the work. So don't neglect it, I think. I, I, I really enjoy it. Yeah. Switching gears a little bit then. So I mentioned at the top of this podcast that you are a an MGMA consultant. 
First, just tell us a little bit about that aspect of it first, the consulting hat that you wear. I know you've already talked about wanting to give back and share your expertise, but in the consulting side of it specifically, what about that, you know, gets you charged up that you enjoy uh, kind of dissecting and diagnosing a practice and helping them create solutions for their challenges and problems? So early in my career, I got nominated for a committee with the American College of Surgeons in coding and reimbursement. And through that committee, I became very involved with the RVU committee, which is the AMA um, system for sort of creating valuation of CPT and RVU codes. So over the sort of last 15 years going to those meetings and participating, that expertise sort of grew in me so that and then as I spoke with colleagues, both academically and clinically, I realized that I had a lot of experience. I had a lot of knowledge that to me seemed just normal stuff where other people had no idea what I was talking about. So uh, as I became someone who looked at all of my graduating residence contracts and developed our own contracts and helped develop our own physician practice plan here, just a real out of necessity. I mean, kind of no one else was doing it. So advocating for myself and my partners and my patients and drew me into the field. And so now as a consultant, I feel like it's like easy for me to look at a practice or, or an issue and snapshot it and then either drill down the data myself with the MGMA resources or teach them how to drill down the data. And I, you know, like back to what I said about experience, I didn't, I didn't, I was humble by the fact that I had knowledge that I didn't think I thought everybody had, mm-hmm. and it's not true. And you can walk into a practice of, highly performing, you know, individuals, doctors, you know, and say, don't you do this? And they say, what are you talking about? And I said, oh, I guess I have something to say. So, um, and it's, you know, it's really um, gratifying to show a practice where the value is. Yeah. One of the areas that you've gravitated to, you've discussed it already today, is physician leadership. So let's talk about that for a minute. Where you're right at the beginning of those careers, uh, helping forge certain traits uh, and knowledge base for those physicians. But where are we getting it right with physicians right now? And where do we still have room for improvement to help them become better leaders? I think, um, yeah, we're, we're, I, you know, I, everyone looks back and says, it's not, things are getting better or things are getting worse. And, you know, and Both. I, hate, <laughs> I don't want to be the old guy saying, ah, you know, it's better in my day because there's a lot of things that are better. Right. Right. I'm, I'm currently I'm really concerned about the profit motive in medicine and, and sort of the private equity and influence. And so you look at the, the profit world versus the non-profit world. And, you know, don't get me wrong, non-profit, nonprofit hospitals want to make money. You know, trying to keep our doors open when most of our hospitals break even if they're lucky. You know, the hospital margin just came out. I think the average hospital margin is negative. Well, that's no good. What, how can we not solving these problems? We have to be financially secure. Physicians themselves are much more empl- becoming more employed, so their questions are very different. You know, I had a, a, a senior anesthesiologist last night tell me that you know only a doctor can practice medicine, but a lot of people can own doctors and tell them how to practice medicine. Mm. So we have to push back against that. We have to we have to remember as we become employed, we're losing some of our independence and some of our ability to make it happen. Whereas you know, the private practice world is probably waning. We don't have the resources to, to have the IT and all the quality metrics. It's more difficult, but we have to command the realm of patient care. We can't get in quality. So we can talk about that more, but as quality and value 
become a, more of a they need to be that needs to be more of a micro assessment than a macro assessment. But I can tell you more about that. Yeah. Okay. Now, yeah, um, this might be a loaded question because I I know a couple of answers come to mind for me. But when you're consulting with practices, are you hearing some? recurring themes of what their pain points are what what are you hearing that just goes yeah i just heard that from the last practice i was consulting with yeah so practices that are either so you're you're either looking at a big practice that's a private practice that still essentially employs their physicians whether they're partners or not partners or you're looking at a larger practice that is part of a bigger system right so you're still looking everything is overloaded on rvus i think now so it's too there's too much emphasis on rvus people are realizing it and they're struggling with how to break out of it. So, you know, maybe a private practice that's still working the old method with pay, every payer, they're trying to fight like the different, the systems that are, you know, the different components of how they get their contracts negotiated, very difficult. They're uh, looking at different revenue streams. How do they, you know, if they're a specialist, how do they cover the hospital when, you know, they, they don't have time anymore, they're short. How do they, how do they advocate for resources at the hospital level for case management or throughput? How does an outpatient primary care practice look at, you know, covering all those quality metrics and IT updates that they can't cover without, with, you know, a conversion factor for Medicare that's going down? And so what is it? Like, you know, I always talk about the disconnect. If you look at the MGMA numbers on dollar per RVU compensation, for example, you know, they're generally trending upward for most specialties. And yet the conversion factor is down. So what's in there? There's a value judgment that someone's paying because we are valued and it didn't the payers necessarily. So that connection, like anytime I go into practice, I have to make them understand that connection. You're not an RVU. You have to figure out where your value comes from and how do you um, maximize it and realize the gain so your patients can get you know proper care. Okay. Okay. One of the things that I did leave out that's in your... CV, so to speak. You are also chair of the ACS Coding and Reimbursement Committee. You've authored numerous articles and a textbook on reimbursement for surgeons. Talk about coding and reimbursement right now. What are the biggest challenges that you're seeing uh, out there right now? Yeah, so we fight the RVU game. So we, we do believe that the RVU is a metric. And I, I often say it's the, it's the currency, but it's not the economy. So you have to understand what RVUs are if they're if they're relative to the world of reimbursement. Because as you look to sort of benchmark yourself, it could be production based and then value based based on you know your metrics, whether they're MGMA data or whatever. So many many physicians are learning about RVUs. So we fight the the struggle to maintain those RVUs at appropriate values, whether it's a new procedure. You know we're, we're in the process of you know, valuing telemedicine visits, you know, giving them an RVU value, which will translate into payment. So um, we're very much in that world, but at the same time, we understand that we can't keep running on this hamster wheel of RVUs. Mm -hmm. So one of my biggest concerns now is quality metrics. How do you know, we can get to that maybe another question, but in the future, I think we need to understand um, quality. You know, we can say, okay, you know, Cleveland Clinic has good quality, okay. At the, at the individual physician level, show me who has the best quality and are they getting paid for it or not? Does a, does a surgeon that has better quality get paid more? I think it's not true. A surgeon who has the best quality may do less surgery actually. May actually say, oh, you don't need it right now. Instead of saying, well, I get paid if I fix your hernia now when maybe you don't need it right now. I mean, there's all kinds of things in there 
And we don't really know what at the individual level, if quality physicians really get reimbursed for what they're doing. We also don't know the basket of motivators for what a physician really wants. Do they want more overuse or do they want, you know, um, a more streamlined office process that brings the patients in more effectively? Maybe that has value for them. So those are the kind of issues I'm looking at in the um, reimbursement world. Okay. I want to ask you one question because you do wear a lot of hats right now. As you know, stress management and time management are paramount for people in the healthcare field. What do you do to decompress or just to do anything else in life? Do you have a hobby? Do you have an exercise routine? What does Dr. Sinkowski do to keep, keep <laughs> sane here in this world? <laughs> That's a bad question. I don't know. I mean, I, you know, family is important. I, um, I, 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 you know, I'm a workaholic, obviously, for sure. <laughs> I, I enjoy the different, like, for example, I'm going to my committee meeting on Washington. And while okay. some would say that's work, I'll fly in with colleagues that I've known for 15 years. We'll have a nice dinner. We'll have a really good collaboration. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're from all across the country. And uh, that's really a, a good community for me in terms of, like, letting off stress, even though might, some might say that's a work environment. I mean, we'll work for about four hours, and then we'll go out to dinner. And so that's, I, I enjoy the ability to collaborate with like-minded individuals. And so that's probably one of my biggest sources of um, decompressing other than family. Yeah, well, that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. So before we sign off then, we've covered a lot. There is a lot that, that physicians and administrators face right now. So just share with us some best practices you believe would benefit our listeners right now. I think stay in the stay in the conversation. You know, it's easy for us to um, abrogate some things. You know, for for we do it in education sometimes. You know, the, in surgical education, there's a whole level of PhD educators that develop our curriculum, and we don't. Sometimes we don't. We should get more involved. We, well, we're the surgeons, you know. Um, and same with the C-suite. You know, this the the old dyad approach or the sort of physician leaders. We have to have MDs in leadership at every level. And you know, as much as we're wearing more than one hat. We can't give that up. So I would say to what I see in new young leaders is prepare, prepare, prepare. We don't see as much depth of preparation that we used to because of ease of Google or ease of whatever access. Dig deep, understand the process so that when you get to the table, you are the expert. And, and you know, and don't be afraid to offer your two cents. The, um, the, the administrative leadership is looking for guidance and they don't know what you know as a physician. So don't be afraid. All right. That is great advice. Dr. Sinkowski, thanks for joining us today and sharing these insights. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed the, uh, the talk. Appreciate All it. Right. Well, that is going to do it for this episode of MGMA's Consultants Corner podcast. Our thanks to Dr. Chris Sinkowski. He is an MGMA consultant. Uh, in the episode show notes, I'll provide a direct link where you can Uh, access that and connect with Dr. Sinkowski and MGMA's other consultants as well. Uh, Until then, thanks so much for listening and talk to you again next week. If you like the work we're doing, please consider becoming an MGMA member. Learn more at mgma.com slash membership.